Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with your favourite actors and creatives in the world of musical theatre. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. Today we're going backstage with Andy Mientis, who's currently playing Patrick in The View Upstairs at the Soho Theatre in London. You might know him from the TV shows Gone, The Flash, and of course, Smash. He also played Marius in the recent Broadway revival of Les Mis, and Hanshin in the original US touring production of Spring Awakening. Andy played that role for a second time in the Broadway transfer of the Deaf West production of the show, which he co-created with his now husband, Michael Arden. The Deaf West Theatre Company makes new versions of plays and musicals using American Sign Language alongside spoken English. You'll hear more about them a little bit later. Andy and I had a chat in his dressing room, which he shares with some of the other actors in the show. It has all the usual mirrors and lights down one side, plus a tap that won't stop running. Here's our conversation. Andy Mientis, welcome to the Backstage With podcast. Thank you. We are here to talk about The View Upstairs, in which you are playing Patrick. For those listeners who haven't seen the show, just tell us what it's about. So, The View Upstairs is a story about an arson attack, which occurred, a real-life event, which occurred in 1973 in New Orleans. We tell the story of some regulars of this bar who are sort of composites of several different real life people but for the purposes of our story we boiled it down to just a handful of people um, living out this night in which this thing occurred now meanwhile there is a modern storyline going on with a character in 2019 and as these two storylines intermingle in sort of a ghostly way um, you sort of get a story about where we are now in terms of queer rights and queer life, where we were then, how far we've come, how far we have yet to go, what was gained, what was lost, all of that. And you learn about this tragedy that many people don't know about. How did this project come about for you? Because you are the the only American import in the show. I am, yeah. So I had met Jack Maple socially like many years ago, and I don't even quite really remember how, to be honest. And so last year, like in the fall, I want to say, or the winter, he sent me a message asking my availability for the summer, saying there might be something for me because I think I had expressed many times that I really wanted to work here and I was kind of open to any idea that anybody had. And I, at the time, was available. And so he said, okay, great. And then I didn't hear from him for a while. And then this came through as an offer, which I don't get a whole lot of direct offers. So, you know, I'm always listening when, like, anything comes across my desk that I don't have to audition for, because um, that's always nice. And then, again, I'd always wanted to work here, so, like, I already was one foot in, sort of, whatever it was. And then I'd known about the show from its off-Broadway run, but I didn't get to see it. I don't think I was in town when it was happening. But I was aware of it, and I was aware of Max Vernon, the writer, as, you know, a really... Um, exciting up-and-comer, someone that people were talking about in the city, and especially with the work that he had done since The View Upstairs, a show called K-Pop made a big splash off Broadway. And um, and knowing what it was about, I was excited. You know, I'm, I'm always interested in doing um, queer shows, queer theater, and especially things about, you know, real history. Um, and so then I read it, and I listened to it, and I just thought, like, oh my gosh, what a perfect thing to take me over to London. Yeah, it's absolutely perfect. I mean, I really couldn't have asked 
for anything better. The material itself is quite heavy, obviously. The songs are intricate and complex time signatures and key signatures, especially your two solos. Yes. I was sitting there listening, thinking, oh my God, like how, how on earth do you learn this? Listening to it, I thought it might be harder than Sondheim to get your head across. The second song in particular, I have a song called Waltz, uh, which is a waltz, um, but it's really a, an aria that Max has written. It doesn't really follow one one you know hummable melody it kind of goes wherever the song goes emotionally and it changes quite a bit like tempo wise changes feel changes changes um and so yes it's very hard to navigate when you got the material <laughs> how how did you start to get across it i mean i guess you had the cast album that oh would guide yeah you a bit. i mean i didn't i listened to it but i didn't want to listen to it too much because i just didn't want mm, to create my performance before we had been in rehearsal at all before i'd heard what Jonathan, our director's thoughts about the character were, you know, before I'd really been living in the scenes. So I just sort of trusted based on, you know, my past experience working on shows that I was going to have time with the MD to like get a, they call it a bash here. We call it a plunk back home of the notes. Like okay. just what are the notes nakedly, slowly, and just learn it bit by bit before I, because when you listen to a cast album, you're listening to somebody's finished performance and you just can't help but let that influence you. And Taylor, who played Patrick in New York, is brilliant and a friend of mine. Um, and so I knew I would be especially vulnerable to copying him. So I wanted to um, divorce myself from that. So I, I just waited, honestly, and I sort of spent more time with the script, just kind of doing the things that actors do, like picking out what do we know about this person, you know, just on paper, and then what can I infer based on those things. Did it help you that Patrick was created as a character who in real life was an unidentified male? Yes, I didn't mention this. So Patrick is based on three different men who were killed in the bar who were unidentified. There were three people, although one of them was identified many years later because of a documentary that had come out about the fire. So now there's only two unidentified victims of the fire. Um, but there were victims who were unidentified because at the time, you know, it was the 70s. People didn't leave as much of a trail behind them as they do now with, you know, their digital lives and whatever. And, and it was quite shameful to be to be queer. So people were anonymous and men were coming to this bar anonymously. They were, you know, sort of estranged from their families and thus never no one ever came forward to claim the bodies and they were buried in a potter's field. And so, yes, I didn't have direct research to do about this person, although everybody in the play is playing a number of people. Like, none of the characters are exactly one person from the bar because 32 people lost their lives. So Max didn't want to try to zero in on any five or six of them. It felt, you know, disrespectful. So he chose to make composites of a few different people and create sort of the types of people that were in the bar. And so I'm playing a type of person, which was fun to then make a fully fleshed out person. But yeah, it did feel like a bit of a relief to not have to worry about you know, am I getting this exactly right? Is this somebody, would they like what I'm, what I'm doing? When you came into rehearsals, when, with such a sensitive topic, did you do any work as a group on, on the, the event itself? Yes. So um, we all did a bit of um, research personally, and there's a great book about the event called Tinderbox, which was in the room and available for everybody to read. So we were all sort of perusing that and we had articles on the walls about it all. Jonathan, our director, tasked us with bringing in a number of images that we all shared. So we brought in images that we thought our character might look like 
um, that could be anything. I have some by my mirror over there. And we had to bring in images of New Orleans at the time, images of the event, of the fire, because there are quite a few and they're really horrific. Um, and then images of Stonewall, actually, because Stonewall occurred just a few years before this. And so it's very much on their minds. It's this thing that's sort of existing outside of our world, but informing our world. There's, you know, one of the characters brings it up at one point and everyone kind of recoils because it was this huge you know, world-changing thing, but it was in New York City where that kind of thing was possible. Whereas in the Deep South, we just thought that that revolution wasn't coming. And then in talking about the fire, we sort of read through what actually occurred, the details of what actually occurred. And I don't want to spoil too much about the way it's staged, but we knew we weren't going to do exactly that. But in order to do the abstracted version that we're doing, we had to stage what happened very literally, which was a really intense day, like just really awful to have to stage something like that. But we did it so that when we took those details away and do our abstracted version, we all know what we're actually portraying. At the end of that day, how did you pick yourself up? Oh, gosh, there were a lot of drinks after yeah. every day of rehearsals. Luckily, we were rehearsing upstairs from a, a great little like cafe pub and, and it was outdoor and, you know, top of the summer. So the weather was lovely. So we would um, at the end of most rehearsals, we would go and have a company drink. And it was just a really nice way to like turn off the play, turn off the trauma of it and get to know each other. How does it feel as someone coming in from the theatre community in America to work with some of London's greats? What can I say? You know, it's just a spoil of riches. Like I was aware of so many of these actors before and but I didn't know any of them were doing it any of them when I signed on I just signed on based on the play and the opportunity and um so when the cast was announced I was sort of beside myself especially with Declan because we knew each other before because he worked in New York for many years and we were friends like good friends and so it was good to know that I was going to have at least one friend coming in um and Ty I had met socially as well and I was a big fan of his from Superstar which I saw in the park Um, during that run. And so it's just been such a treat. I mean, everyone is so great at what they do and so well cast. Like not only are they amazing actors, but I truly can't imagine anyone else in any of their roles. It's, It's just so bang on. And so, yeah, to just continue to learn from them the way I learn from like every cast that I'm in, no matter who they are, but people this talented and this committed and to just really trust that they were gonna elevate whatever we were doing to another level you know it's a new musical that was changing underneath us as we were doing it our director and max the writer were working very hard on refining the script for london audiences and just sort of based on everything that max had learned since that first production and where the world is now you know the original production was in 2017 so this was set in 2017 and the world is different even a few short years later so um you know, we're getting new pages every day and everyone's just so good that they they can just, on the first try, really bring those pages to life. And we don't have to sort of wait a couple of days to know if this new text is working or not. Like, it was clear immediately what was working and, and what needed to have more work. So, um, yeah, I, just, I think we're doing the best possible version of this thing we can be because of the cast. Let's go back a little bit. What was growing up like for you? Oh my gosh. Um, Growing up was incredibly pleasant. I was really lucky. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is a really interesting town. It's like a crossroads of a lot of different things. Like it's it's an old steel town, so it's quite blue collar. 
And yet there was all this old steel money there. So there are a lot of arts there and arts opportunities and arts endowments. So I got a lot of arts training for free when I was a kid, um, paid for by the state, just these programs that I was lucky to be able to take advantage of. So I, um, yeah, I got a lot more training than I think my family would have been able to afford. Um, and it's a city, a bustling city, but it's also sort of in the seat of the top of Appalachia. So it's, you know, it's so adjacent to like incredible wilderness and mountains and rivers and, you know, um, nature. So I had a lot of really varied experiences growing up, like really good arts training and then also like getting dirty in the woods and going swimming in creeks and stuff like that. And I grew up in a really normal suburban household, really supportive family and yeah, sort of no, no problems there. I'm really grateful and lucky to have had a really uneventful childhood where I was supported and able to pursue the arts. These arts programs that you were a part of, was that something that was just kind of always there? Or was there a, do you remember a point where you were like, that's theatre and that's something I want to, to do? Yeah, I remember being really young and my mom encouraging me to pursue some kind of performance. I think she could tell that I, you know, would be a performer, that I had all this energy and I was always sort of showing off and being funny or whatever. And I really resisted it because I thought it was stupid and I wanted to, you know, do other things. And I was playing Little League baseball. I was terrible at it, but that's what I was doing because uh, my best friend played baseball as well. And we went with his, he had a sister who was in this acting program and I went with them on a weekend to go help build and paint sets. And at this thing, a, I thought it was really cool, like working with the paint and working with the stuff. They were doing Peter Pan's. We were building like Peter Pan sets, Amazing. which were so cool, you know, like jungly and yeah, yeah, pirates yeah. and stuff like that. And I met uh, friends, you know, I made friends that day and I just thought it was so cool. And I was, again, terrible at baseball. I was like dreading going every week. And they were like, oh, he needs some activity, but this is not the one. And I don't remember if it was my idea or my mom's or what, but somebody was like, oh, what about that, that theater school? And so I joined and then... Um, took many years before I really took it seriously beyond like a hobby, but it was the only thing that I was really good at. You know, I was like a decent student, but it was the only thing that interested me enough to like spend my Saturdays doing it rather than playing video games. And, um, and it was the only thing I got like really positive feedback for as being like special in any way doing it. So then it just sort of became my thing. But then you went to university to study theater. I did. Yeah. So I, uh, the summer after my junior year of high school, I went to a boarding arts school that, again, was paid for by the state. This is now defunct, unfortunately. It was this program called Governor's School for the Arts, and it was incredible. It was 200 artists total across all different media. So it was like a handful of actors, some like studio artists, some classical singers, you know, musicians, whatever, painters, everything. And so you'd have class, like college style studio class from 10 to, you know, six or whatever every day. Room and board, three meals a day paid for by the state, completely free, this what? program. Um, but only 200 artists total every summer accepted. And every night there was a mandatory artistic thing that you had to go to. So like, and it was all students. So like the, you know, orchestra kids would do some kind of recital and you'd have to go to that. Or there'd be a gallery thing for the... You know, or we do a, a reading of a play or do a play. I think we did like three fully staged productions during the summer and you had to go to something every night. So that was the 
the moment when I sort of began to think of performing as you know an art and my art like my medium that was related to all these other medium media like that it was um you know they were all different means to the same end and and I started to think of myself as an artist and not just like some kid that acts as a thing to do and it was selective so it was a big deal that I got into it so it was sort of like a sign that I could audition for something and get it when I was up against a lot of different people so that sort of gave me the courage to go for it and audition for colleges and so I auditioned for a few different schools for acting and for musical theater and then I ended up going to the University of Michigan for musical theater, A, because it was a great school, and B, because they gave me a scholarship and I was able to afford it. And so there I went. You're quite outspoken about your sexuality on social media. Mm-hmm. When did you realize that you were bisexual? That's a tricky question. So I am like undeniably queer when you meet me and talk to me. I'm just, my mannerisms are very queer and I always have been. And that never really like freaked me out. Like I was, my friends were queer growing up, even from an early age and out. In fact, like my best friend all through school came out when he was like 10 years old. And this, you know, I was undaunted by this and my family were very cool with everything. So, you know, it was like not a big traumatic deal. I never felt closeted really, but I was also a super late bloomer. I was just like not interested in dating anybody until like probably my junior year, senior year of high school. I was just only interested in like plays and how old is that? Video games. Games. That's like 17, okay. 16, 17. Really late. Yeah. Really late. Really, really late. And at that point, my sort of like awakening was because I had this like massive poem writing crush on a girl that was my friend. Um, And so I had this like whole unrequited love teenage thing, you know, went away to school, got a girlfriend kind of almost immediately when I went to college. And we were together almost my whole time that I was in college, sort of off and on. And then I went on tour, had a girlfriend on tour for like two years, like a really serious girlfriend. And so I wasn't single. And I, again, like I had had such a late sort of awakening that, you know, I I always sort of recognized that I had attractions to men, but I think a lot of people that are attracted to their same sex have a share a phenomenon where it's hard to know, especially in the nascent stages of what that is, whether or not you desire somebody or if you just want to be them. Like when you're looking at that broad shoulder or that, you know, hair or the face or like whatever, or even just the way someone is, the way they carry themselves, there's a weird line between attraction and like envy and admiration. And so I just sort of thought that I was really open-minded, like the way women have no trouble being like, oh, she's so gorgeous, she's so hot, like, look at her, you know. I just thought I had that same sort of way about about guys because I'd never really had feelings for men and I'd never had a sexual experience with a man. And so, and it didn't really interest me, frankly, um, for a while. And then, you know, there were some experiences, but really not until I started dating. So... Before we even started dating, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, Michael, my now husband, was a friend of mine for many years before we were together. Um, We met because he was dating a friend of mine, but we'd actually met briefly before that because he was doing a show on Broadway that my college roommate was in, and we met at the opening night of it. Just hi, hello. But then we met later because he was dating a friend of mine that I went to school with, and um, we remained friends. 
And when I was doing Spring Awakening at the Amundsen in Los Angeles, he was doing Pippin at the Mark Taper Forum. And that's when we like really reconnected, got close, and we were talking all the time. And then like a year after I got back from the tour of Spring Awakening, um, when I was finally in the city, single, able to like figure out who I was, we were talking and I just sort of like realized that I think I might have feelings for him. And I told him as much. And he was very scared of this because he didn't want to like, you know, I was very young and very green and, you know, he didn't, we were friends. He didn't want to like mess up a good thing. So there was like some very tentative, you know, time sort of feeling that out. And then we got over it. And then we've been together literally ever since. How many years is that? That is like... I want to say nine or 10 years. We've been married for three. My anniversary is on August 18th. Oh, that's so, soon. Yeah. Yeah, it's in... Oh, that's next week. Next week yeah. Oh, my God. Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> um, let's just touch on Spring Awakening. You left university after a year to do that. Is that right? No, after three after years. After three years. Okay. So I had like a good chunk of training. Oh, so you, you were nearly done anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I missed out on my senior year, which is really like the year of polish, I think. But at Michigan, I really think like the sophomore year and junior years are the years where it's the the really hard work. Freshman year is sort of about like letting oh, so you be... so junior is the third year. I thought, ah, that Junior's makes sense. Because I, re- I read junior and went, oh, that must be the first year. Oh, is that different in... I don't know. We just call it first, second, and oh, third. Oh, yeah. We're so much we have, more we literal have freshman, sophomore, junior, senior are our years. So freshman year is about like letting you be a drunk mess and be away from home for the first time. That's and sort the same. Of getting your feet wet. Sophomore year is when they break you down to absolutely nothing, like strip you of all your um, your bad habits and your. It's not as bad as it sounds. I'm making it sound very dramatic, but you know what I mean. It's yeah, not yeah, sort yeah. of breaking down the things that got you there, like just trying to be adorable all the time and like what actually is acting. I'm still doing that. Junior year is about like building it back up, and then senior year is about like polishing it. So okay. I missed out on the polish. So which you're is just still raw. That's very fine. apparent if you look at my early work. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I did get like a lot of good good years there. I felt. Like I had my college experience fully. And then to to go straight on tour with that show. I mean, that show was so, such a big thing to so many people. Yes. I and was, that was really at the height of its like phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to take that on the road. I mean, the reaction it was getting in New York was huge, but the reaction on the road must have been enormous. Well, it was brand new on the road. You know, it was like by that time they had done a replacement cast in New York. And so it was in like its second year and, you know, most of the industry had already seen it. And so it was now you know, enjoying crowds of tourists, people that had like seen it on the Tonys and had bought tickets to it. Um, or, and like th- throngs of fans who had seen it now many dozens of times. Like it was like enjoying that sort of era of its time. But on the road, it was brand new. So like every town we went to, we were getting reviewed and, you know, in places like Los Angeles and um, at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. and in Chicago and stuff, they were these big, exciting markets. And... And then in the smaller markets, you know, kids that really needed to see that show that couldn't get to New York were getting to see it. And so we were getting like very emotional reactions from people, very angry reactions from some people, um, you know, walkouts and the audit people were very shocked because they just knew it as like, oh, that musical that won the Tony. Like, I wonder what that's all about. They bought it as part of their subscription. Oh, God, and then they see and my then junk they, and they're like, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like really out there. And this, you know, I even think now it might not be as shocking to people, but just the kind of show that it was was very new at the time. You know, now I think post-Hamilton, post-Evan Hansen, post-Come From Away, audiences all over, not just in New York, are more used to more chamber, more contemporary shows tackling you know 
more adult subject matter, but this was really out there. You know what I mean? Like before that, I think musical comedies were really kind of in vogue and, and big flashy Broadway shows, you know, the producers was like in recent memory and things like that. And so it was just really out there for a lot of people across the country. And then you went and put another spin on it with your husband. Yes. To make it even more groundbreaking. Yes. You both sort of came up with the concept. Is that right? We did. In yeah. LA. So basically after I had finished up smash, um, Michael which we was, will talk about. Which we will talk about. Michael was acting on a sitcom in Los Angeles, um, but he was interested in directing. He was sort of feeling like maybe it was time to change tracks. Right. And so he had done two shows as an actor with Deaf West, Pippin I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and then he had done Big River, which was his Broadway debut. And so he had a relationship with them, new ASL, and they had reached out to him and said, you know, if you wanted to direct something mm-hmm. for us, we would love to have you. So we were in LA at the time. I was like auditioning for whatever, like the follow-up to Smash was going to be. And we were brainstorming about what that might be. And I said, what about Spring Awakening? Which I think the idea came to me when I was doing Spring Awakening at the same time that he was doing Big River at the Mark Taper Forum. And so we spent a couple of days sort of talking about what that might be and why, like what the story would be. And Michael brought it to Deaf West and they said, yeah, let's do a workshop. So we did, we co-directed Michael and I a 10 day workshop in literally like the strangest places. Like one of our rehearsal studios was literally a stripper fitness class in downtown LA, like stripper poles. And it, and there was a cat living in there and it like smelled like cat pee. I mean, it was so (laughs) down and dirty. Um, but that was the, the work that sort of told us like which characters wanted to be deaf. It was where we came up with the concept that the deaf characters would actually be deaf, not just like characters who are played by deaf actors in a sort of parallel universe where we're all speaking and signing, which is sort of how Big River was. Like Huck wasn't deaf in Big River. He was just played by a deaf actor. And we, you know, just sort of ignored that there was a difference between the deaf and hearing characters. We were like, what would happen if this is set in Germany in 1891, but the deaf characters are deaf? And like, what if the voices aren't just standing off to the side in low light, but what if they're involved in the story? What if the voices are acting as the conscience, the inner rock star, you know, whatever for the for the deaf characters? What happens? And what if they're in modern dress, but the deaf actors are in period dress so they're in different worlds and sort of came up with all that that like the bones of what the production would be those but big it's already so many layers of yes yes and we were so excited by what was coming out in that introductory work but we staged you know a couple of numbers and a couple of scenes and it was enough for deaf west to be like yes we want to do this so the production was greenlit for some point i can't remember anymore what the dates were but it was greenlit for you know a few months out and in that time i was cast in les mis on broadway And so, you know, this was now they were going to do Spring Awakening at a 99th seat theater in Los Angeles in which no one was making any money. I think we, in fact, put in like quite a bit of our own money to just make it happen because, you know, it was a big show for Deaf West. They're not doing big musicals like that, really. And so it just made perfect sense for me to continue and do, you know, Marius and Les Mis, not do um, this tiny little production of Spring Awakening. So I said, you know, Michael, take it bless you have fun so that happened huge success i went and i saw it at the 99c theater it blew me away it was unbelievable um that same weekend that i was in town to see spring awakening was when i auditioned for the flash i just happened to be in la and was able to audition and that's how that happened which is a whole other story then because that production was such a success 
this theater, the Wallace Annenberg, wanted to do a like two-week, three-week run of it as sort of like a bonus lap for that production. And it was going to be a remount, and thus it had almost no rehearsal time. And um, a lot of, not a lot of, but a few of the actors from the first production took other jobs because, again, it was there was no plan to take this to Broadway. Like, it was just going to be a chance to do more performances of this great thing that had happened downtown with, like, a slightly bigger set and a slightly bigger budget. And the actor who had played Hanshin there got a film and, you know, smartly took that film. And so Michael called me freaking out that, you know, he had lost this actor in this major role and how was he going to replace him and how was he going to have time to rehearse somebody new? And really just to calm him down, I said like, well, if you don't find anybody else and if it doesn't look totally ridiculous that I'm still playing this part, because now I'm 27, I think at the time, 28, playing a 15 year old, um, I'll do it. I know some ASL from the workshop. I obviously know the role. I played it for like 600 performances on the road. So like, you know, I'll do it. I did a pilot and I was waiting to hear if the pilot was going to go to series. And I had like two months off and it just was this perfect thing. So I ended up doing it. And then the pilot didn't get picked up and the show, you know, producers wanted to take it to Broadway. And so suddenly I'm playing the part on Broadway in this show that we came up with together. Amazing. Yeah. And wasn't there something historic about that show in the Brooks Atkinson? Um, I can't remember what it was. I just feel like I read something. Well, the historic thing about that show uh, was that we had in the ensemble, not deaf, but hearing, we had Ali Stroker. Tony Award winning. Tony Award winning Ali Stroker, who uh, is and was the first wheelchair user ever to be on Broadway. I cannot believe that it took until that, till 2015. I know. We had to do quite a bit of checking to make sure that was the case because it seemed insane but yes she was the first ever wheelchair user on broadway um and so that was historic and then you know now she has just won a tony award for her incredible performance in oklahoma which i hope people can go is see. there a cast recording there is a cast recording Great. so we can hear her if we can't get it yes but i re- i think it's worth the flight because it's a crazy of production of oklahoma that you will never see anything like ever again i saw it twice in a week i'm obsessed with it <laughs> let's talk about les mis very quickly yeah that was one of the longest runs you'd ever done was it longer than Spring Awakening? No, I did Spring Awakening a little longer than a year, and I did Les Mis for a year. But obviously Les Mis yes. in only one place. Bit, yes. How, psychologically, how was that? At the end, were you hard. like, I'm ready to go? Yes. And I don't want to like sound like it was a bad experience or that I'm ungrateful for it, but that show was really hard. I felt really out of my element doing it, if I'm perfectly honest. Vocally, it was not my wheelhouse, and so it was hard work to like sing that score. It's hard work for anybody, that score, but for me especially, I really struggled. And then it was just hard. Michael was in LA doing his show, so I was on my own, doing this incredibly sad, very long, very physical show in which I felt out of place. And so it was really um, kind of dark. Like It was, it was really hard to do. Um, so at the end of it, I kind of limped across the finish line and said, like, thank you, so grateful, can't wait to see someone do this who can like really do it. And I hope the next thing I do, I'm a little more suited to. And that happened to be Spring Awakening, which felt way more my my thing. I meant to ask, what was it like being directed by your husband in a show? It was fine because I think we both knew, I think because we had started the show together, creating it together, we both really knew what we wanted it to be. And so this was just like, you're doing this on this and I'm doing this. These are the things we have to offer toward this greater whole. And so we just sort of, you know, made it happen and you couldn't really take anything personally, but it was fun. It was really, really fun. Were there any ever any disagreements that you sort of took home um, fighting over the breakfast table? I had this idea 
back from the original like workshop that the characters in this one moment should be wearing animal masks in this kind of like weird, you know, David Lynch, Kubrick kind of Chagall moment, this weird pagan That's kind of dreamscape. <laughs> it was really out there, but it was during a really out there moment. There's this song called The Mirror Blue Night where Melchior is really what's happening is he's masturbating in the hayloft and then Venla catches him and that leads to their sex scene. But in the play, it's abstracted. So it's this weird techno song and there's like blue light everywhere and the lyrics are really poetic. It's very strange. So it's already a strange moment. And I, I had this thought that like, oh, they're, who's in there with Melchior in the hayloft? Because the boys, the ensemble boys are in there with him singing the song while this is happening. So I was like, who is this singing the song to him? What if it's like the barnyard animals are in there kind of <laughs> watching him? And like, isn't this weird? And that made it through like one um, dress rehearsal and then we cut the masks and I was really upset about that because I thought it was a great idea. Someday when I direct my own Spring Awakening, those masks are coming back. How long did it take you to let it go? I'm still not over it, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I can't leave you without asking about Smash. Yeah. Was it cool to be in a TV show that was set in and around New York? Because most of those things are made in LA, aren't they? Yes. I mean, it made it made work really easy because I could walk there a lot of the time. And it was amazing. It was all, you know, all the guest actors were New York, like, theater actors for the most part. A lot of them were friends of mine. Um, and, you know, I was in a new medium. I'd never been on television, even as a one line, like, what do you want to order, waiter? And suddenly I have this like lead role on this huge show produced by Steven Spielberg and I'm freaking out. I'm, you know, pooping my pants every day. And um, so having those elements that were familiar made it doable for me, you know. Um, so it was a great joy to, to do that, to shoot there. What was life like on that show? Did it feel odd that it was replicating reality? Because obviously it's about the industry that you were working anyway. It wasn't weird for me, the fact that it was replicating because it was a TV show. Like, I'm sure, you know, I, the the pilot that I shot that I talked about that didn't go to series was a medical pilot. So we had to, like, go shadow surgeons and stuff. And then when we were actually like, shooting the pilot, you know, you do your best, but it's TV. You have to, like, fudge things. And I sort of got what it was. But I was just so tickled that it was that it existed at all. That, like, we're on, you know, primetime network television talking about, you know, workshops and and auditions and stuff like that that I think is so niche and turned out was quite niche. It was, but the people who loved it really loved it. Oh, yeah. People ask me about Smash every single day. I talk about Smash every day. Are you you tired of talking about it? No, it's amazing. Good. I think a lot of people want to come back. It's on the reboot list, surely. I don't know. One would hope. Maybe. Well, I won't be there. Spoiler alert. No. 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 We'll briefly touch on Wicked, another long runner. But how long were you in that show? I only did it for six months. It was like a weird little... You know, just like in and out, in and out, fun thing to do. Was it something that you were like, was it a show that you were like, oh, I'll do that one day? You know, when I was in college, it was new and we all were obsessed with it. And I was like, this will be my first job out of school. I know it. Like, I'm going to go be Bach right out of school like this, you know, and then it didn't happen. Um, And then had you auditioned for it before? No, no. Um, It was an offer. I truly don't really know how it exactly happened um but yeah it was a show that i always loved and like wanted to be a part of and i knew that my friend jessica was playing alphaba at the time and i was like yeah absolutely and it was so great to do i gotta say i like if i'm really honest i didn't know what it was going to be like because it was a long runner and i'd never replaced in something that had been going that long and um you know 
on tour again, like to go back on the road after, you know, having done certain things. I was like, I don't know what this is going to be, but I'm excited. And um, it was so great to do a show that was indestructible. Like all the understudies were incredible. Anybody could go on any role and like the show still would work. Even on our worst day, like everyone would leap to their feet and we're playing these huge houses, thousands of seats. Every seat is full And people have been waiting for the show to come to their town and they booked their ticket a year ago, you know, so they're so happy to be there. It was completely magic. Like, it was such a great time in my life. Last question. You've worked in a lot of places. Favorite city to work in? Mm. Oh, gosh. D.C. Oh, great answer. Although London now is incredible. Oh, are we edging? You're very much up there. They have A.C. That's why they're winning. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Um, you are also a published author. Let's just plug your books. Yeah, so I have, a, I have a series of books for middle grade readers, which is ideally 10 to 14 years old. But, you know, you could read it to younger readers. You could enjoy it yourself if you're a kid at heart. Um, called The Backstagers, um, which is about a group of boys in an all-boys school who are the backstage crew of their drama club. And they go on paranormal adventures in the backstage. Can we get it here? I think so. It it's available wherever books are sold. I believe there is an ebook, and I, I'm almost certain, like on the cover, I've seen like pricing in pounds. So I do think you can get it here. If not, like you know, Amazon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or just get it when you're on holiday. Or just get it out when you're on holiday. But I'm, I'm almost certain you can get it here. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can see Andy and the view upstairs at the Soho Theatre until the 24th of August. For tickets, just go to SohoTheatre.com. Next time on the podcast, we're going backstage with Caroline Sheen, who's playing Violet in 9 to 5 The Musical in the West End. To make sure you don't miss it, just subscribe to Backstage With on your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. Listener.